Good singing, man. Good singing. Thank you, Monsia. It's beautiful. I love that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As I mentioned to you last week, arguably Genesis 1-1 is the most important statement ever written or spoken by a man. Arguably the most important verse in the Bible. Genesis 1-1 is true. The implications for mankind are nothing less than eternal. We have a creator. There is a lawgiver. He is our judge. And we are accountable to him. If Genesis 1-1 is true. And it matters every single day when we get up. How we live before this awesome God. If Genesis 1-1 is false, ultimately nothing really matters at all. Everything is senseless and meaningless. We are merely the product of some inexplicable, cataclysmic, cosmic chance event. Took me a while to practice on that one. <laughs> Existence, again, is meaningless. We are merely grown-up germs, as I said last week, waiting to become fertilizer. The 20th century theologian and apologist Francis Schaeffer said it perfect, uh, perfectly. He said, it is either not knowing or denying the createdness of things that is at the heart of the blackness of modern man. I think that's, that's, that's perfect. It's either not knowing or denying the createdness of things that is at the heart of the blackness of modern man. Genesis 1.1, as I said to you earlier, is the indispensable truth for mankind. If you remove Genesis 1.1, all bets are off. Everything is permitted. Russian author and existentialist uh, Theodore Dostoevsky said it like this. Some of you know this quote. If God does not exist, then what? Everything's permitted. If God does not exist, if Genesis 1.1 is false, then everything is permitted. In his book entitled, Can Man Live Without God? Ravi Zacharias actually is asking this question. Can man live without God in a reasonable way? And his conclusion is, of course, no, he cannot. Without a point of reference such as God, and I'm quoting Ravi Zacharias, a person ultimately denies moral law, abandons hope, and forfeits all meaning. Men Man is then left to design his own absolutes by which to live. The inevitable result is chaos. The 20th century gives evidence of this truth that man cannot live in a reasonable way without God. It's no coincidence that the 20th century is the bloodiest century in the history of humanity. The 19th century amateur... Uh, naturalist named Charles Darwin, who we talked about some last week, uh, he, in effect, pronounced God unnecessary. 19th century philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche pronounced God dead. Is it any wonder that the 20th century was the bloodiest in human history? Does it surprise anyone 
that Adolf Hitler was a Nietzsche fan and he was a Darwinist. Now, I'm not alleging that to be a Darwinist is to be a Nazi. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. But I am making the connection. I am going to make the connection. Hitler used atheistic Darwinism philosophy to justify his ends. He took that worldview to its horrible, logical, ultimate conclusion. I actually heard a historian say, I was doing some research this week, heard a historian say that Hitler would have told you he was doing mankind a service. He was only helping along survival of the fittest. Okay? He was only helping along natural selection. He was advancing mankind in the evolutionary struggle. This is what Adolf Hitler would have told you with regard to his policies. Another fan of macro-Darwinism was a gentleman named Karl Marx. Some of you will recognize that name. Marx was actually a contemporary of Darwin. He, he loved Darwin's teachings. He, in fact, he sent an autographed copy of his book, Das Kapital, to Darwin, and he actually asked Darwin if he could dedicate his subsequent book to him. Marx was a big fan. Darwin implied that God was unnecessary. Dostoevsky pronounced God dead. Pardon me, Nietzsche pronounced him dead, and Dostoevsky said, if that's true, everything's permitted. And we've seen it. We've seen it in the 20th century. The Nazis and the Marxists understood the implications of atheistic, macro-Darwin evolutionary philosophy. Hitler murdered tens of millions. The Marxists, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, and others, murdered hundreds of millions. Dissident Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn said it perfectly. Listen to what he said. If you ask me what the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up millions of people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That is why all of this has happened. That brings me back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what I want you to hear, beloved, is this is an awesome revelatory gift from God. He's told us He is there and existence means something. It is not senseless. It means something. Simply by virtue of the fact that He created us, it is meaningful. We are accountable to Him. We must live in accordance with His dictates. He is our absolute that we build our life around. Genesis 1.1 is true. God is our absolute upon which we build our life. And the other thing we learned from Genesis 1.1, we touched on this last week, God is irrepressibly awesome. He speaks and worlds stand forth. He is the awesome Creator God. There is no one beside Him. There is no one like Him. He stands alone. He is utterly unique in the cosmos. He is the great uncreated One. A lot of theology in Genesis 1.1. I think I could preach Genesis 1.1 for probably a year. I'm not going to do that. But I think I could. 
an awesome God worth pursuing, worth knowing, worth worshiping, worth living for. And Genesis 1.1, in my view, is a theologically titillating proposition. Solomon told us in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has put eternity in our hearts. Friends, I've told you this many times. God has put eternity in our hearts. Nothing on this planet can fill your heart. There's only one person who can fill your heart, and His name is Jesus Christ. Oh, guess what? That's what He came to do. He came to redeem you and to fill you up. God, in the Gospel, preeminently, is giving Himself away to His people. It's an awesome thing. It's an awesome thing. He gives Himself to His people for the joy of His people. He redeems them for His glory and, and for their joy. It's awesome. It's an awesome thing. Jesus says, I give My people My joy. My joy. Do you know how big God's joy is? Anybody want to hazard a guess? How big is the, the, the joy of God? Amen. It's infinite. It's infinite. And this is what He's giving to His people. Infinite joy. Last week we touched on one of the attributes of God that's implicit in Genesis 1.1. That being God is eternal. The Bible is clear. God is in a category by Himself. He calls Himself I Am. It connotes His transcendent Self-existent. He is the God who just is. Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were born, or thou didst give birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. God steps into time, matter, and space, and He creates. He's stepping out of eternity past. We talked about that some last week, and I won't revisit that at this time. But I am going to share again with you the, the John Piper quote that I absolutely love with respect to creation. What was God doing in creation? What was His impetus for creation? I love this quote. Listen to this. In creation, God has gone public with how awesome He is. He's gone public. I love that. I just love that quote. He's gone public with the glory that reverberates joyfully between the Father and the Son. There is something about the fullness of God's joy that inclines it to overflow and share itself. So the eternal happiness of the triune God spilled over all of God's works in creation or simply the overflow of God's infinite exuberance for His own excellence. I love that quote. It may be my... The fam my, uh, my most f uh, favorite quote from any theologian, God's infinite exuberance is on display in the created order. He's come to give His infinite exuberance to His children. I love, I love the imagery there. Another, another uh, attribute of God that's uh, on display in Genesis 1-1, this is obvious, and Adam did such a great job picking out the songs. This is... Obvious, it's His infinite power. His infinite power. And if you read other verses in the Bible, it makes it clear just how powerful God is. I'm going to share a couple of them with you. God's creative act is utterly unique. He's not like men. Men, in one sense, can create, but men must have tools and they must have materials to create. God needs neither. 
God speaks. He is so powerful. His Word is so powerful. God simply speaks and galaxies stand forth. Listen to what the Bible says about our awesome Creator, Father God. Psalm 33, 6, By the Word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all of their hosts. Psalm 33, 8 and 9, Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him, for He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Psalm 148, 4 and 5, Praise Him, highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. Romans 4.17, Paul writes, God calls into being that which does not exist. As one theologian said, the stately fabric of the universe emerged out of nothing. It was a mere uh, bare fiat. Now, I'm not talking about the car. You know what a fiat is, right? It's simply a, a decree. It's by the power of God's Word. He decrees it and matter stands forth. He simply speaks it and matter obeys. It stands forth. God creates ex nihilo. That's Latin meaning out of nothing. It's raw, unfathomable, incomprehensible, infinite power. It's on display. And as we talked about last week, that's our Creator and that's our Redeemer. Friends, you are safe to the uttermost. No one can snatch you out of His hand. He is El Shaddai, the Almighty God. He speaks and galaxies stand forth. He saves His people and they are forever saved. And nothing can change that. The Old Testament Hebrew knew that their Creator God was awesome and they, they called Him. They called Him El Shaddai. Simply El meaning God and Shaddai meaning Almighty. God creates out of nothing. I love what the 17th century Puritan said, Thomas Watson. He said, to create takes infinite power. All the world cannot create a fly. I want you to think about it. Man with all of his technological savvy, he cannot make a simple fly. He cannot do it. Only Jehovah God can do it. All the world cannot make a fly. As we talked about last week, science confirms the universe had a beginning. This is the universally accepted cosmology in the scientific community. There was a beginning. Now, scientists actually call this the Big Bang Hypothesis. There's, this is how they talk about, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Scientists talk about it in terms of the Big Bang Hypothesis. It is universally accepted in the scientific community. At one time, the universe was thought to be static. It was thought to be eternal. And this fits the, the Darwinian model. But that's been rejected. And so Darwin and his adherents are on the run with respect to the Big Bang hypothesis. If there was a beginning, how did the beginning begin? We talked about this last week. A beginning has unavoidable theological implications. This is why Darwinists, atheistic Darwinists, they love to talk about a static eternal universe. They can't talk about that anymore uh, 
within knowledgeable circles of scientists. It's been rejected. So if there was a beginning, how did it begin? You remember we talked last week, I quoted some prominent scientists who hate the theological implications of the Big Bang. They hate it. You remember some of the words they use. They find it repugnant. They find these theological implications distasteful. They find them traumatizing. They, they find them unthinkable. I want to say to you, beloved, you don't have to shrink back from any PhD on the planet. You don't have to be afraid to go toe-to-toe with any scientist on the planet. All you got to do is put the Big Bang hypothesis in front of him and he has nowhere to go. He has nothing intelligible to say to you if you put the Big Bang hypothesis in front of him. He has nowhere to go. I was, uh, this week as I was doing some research, I was stunned with gleeful disbelief as I saw an interviewer stump possibly the foremost and most formidable atheistic Darwinist on the planet. Do you guys know who Richard Dawkins is? He is an outspoken atheist and Darwinist. Uh, much publicized. Has several books out. I was stunned when the interviewer simply asked him, how did it all begin? And you know where he goes? This was unbelievable to, to me. I could not believe it. You know where he goes? He knows there's complexity. He knows there's all this information in the cell. And he knows he can't explain it. So you know what he says? I couldn't believe this guy said this. He's at Cambridge. He said, well, maybe aliens planted <laughs> complex life forms on the earth. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't help but laugh out loud, just like you. It's called, what's it called? It's called uh, something, panspermia is what it's called. And I thought to myself as I was laughing uncontrollably, I thought a middle school logic student would be able to refute that remark. Richard Dawkins hasn't explained anything. He simply moved the question back one notch. Okay, Richard, where do the aliens come from? Let's talk about that. I was just, I was stunned. This is some of the double speak that you get into many times with that community. As I mentioned to you last week, I love Stephen C. Meyer's quote. He's also a Cambridge educated physicist and geologist. Science done right will inevitably point to God. Science done right will point to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, an unbelievably awesome, genius, beautiful God. He spoke it all into existence. Science done right will take you there. I love that. It'll take you there. And I love what old Bill Craig said last week. I'm just going to share with you one more time. He said, the Christian can stand confidently with the biblical truth knowing it is in line with mainstream astrophysics and cosmology. I said to you last week that we must reject macro-Darwinism that species evolve into other species. Okay? I'm not talking about micro-Darwinism that within species there is improvement and advancement. Science has seen that. That happens a little bit. 
I'm talking about macro-Darwinism. We must reject it on theological grounds, but I challenged you last week that you must also reject it on intellectual grounds. We, we reject it on theological grounds. We reject it on intellectual grounds. If you do your reading, if you do your research in modern science, you will also reject it on intellectual grounds. It is increasingly discredited in the scientific community. I'll quote French professor Louis Bonheur one more time. Evolutionism is a fairy tale for grown-ups. If you don't believe me, you go study it for yourself. I challenge you. If there's anyone in here who actually believes in macro-Darwinism, I think there'll be fewer and fewer as time goes by. But if you still actually believe this, you owe it to yourself to go do the research. You owe it to yourself to do the reading. So go do it. Go do it, Christian. Back to the Scripture. Listen to what the Bible says regarding the power of God. I love this. Job 9, 19. If it is a matter of power, behold, God is the strong one. Psalm 62, 11. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Psalm 115.3 Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Psalm 89.6 For who in the heavens can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto Him? Are you hearing what Scripture is saying? Scripture is saying there's nobody like this God. And God says in Isaiah 46 I am God. There's no one like Me. I declare the end from the beginning. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. He's the Almighty One. He's El Shaddai, friend. He speaks, he speaks and galaxies stand forth. He saves His people and they're utterly saved. He's an awesome God. No one can stop Him. No one can thwart Him. He's no pretender. He's no wannabe. He's for real. Jesus said, Mark 14, 62, I am. And then He said, You shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. In that particular text, power is actually a name for God. And I love Revelation 19, 1 and 6. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. I gave you four goals. And if you weren't here last week and you missed it, you can go out on the podcast side and hear. But I gave you four goals for this brief series on creation. Does anybody remember our preeminent goal as we look at the, the creation account? Does anyone remember? Oh, I'd love it if one of you remembered. Nobody remembers. Okay. <laughs> See, this often happens. This often happens when you preach. The preeminent goal is that we would worship. That we would worship. That we would be in awe. That we would be in wonder. I told you last week we're supposed to read God off the created order. His invisible attributes, as Paul says in Romans 1, His eternal power, His divine nature are clearly seen. The Bible says, understood. They're not only clearly seen, they're understood through what has been made so that man is without excuse. We are supposed to read God off the creation we're supposed to understand that He's there. We're supposed to understand that we're supposed to have a relationship with Him. We're supposed to be pursuing Him. We're supposed to be uh, coming uh, into subjection to Him and loving Him and serving Him and worshiping Him. That's the only reason He made us. That we might be enjoying Him forever as the Catechism 
says, you remember what God told Job the angels were doing when God was creating? Does anybody remember? I love this text. The angels, according to Job 38, 7, when God spoke matter into existence, all the sons of God shouted for joy. They'd never seen matter before. This was a whole brand new thing. The angels had never seen it before. And it was a brand new, a brand new thing. The psalmist tells us that even the created order worships. The angels worship. I want you to get my point. The angels worship. The created order worships. Let me read it to you. Psalm 96 and 98. The heavens are glad. The earth rejoices. The sea and all it contains roars. The field and all that is in it exalt. The trees of the forest sing for joy. The rivers clap their hands. The mountains sing for joy. Oh, guess what you're supposed to do? The same thing. You're supposed to be worshiping this awesome God. The angels are worshiping. The created order is worshiping. And God is calling you to worship. God is calling you to worship Him with your life, with your deeds, with your words, with your career, with your family, with your kids. Everything's worship for the Christian, for the biblical Christian. Everything is worth it, is worth it. We're supposed to read God off the created order and it's supposed to change the way we live. It's supposed to change the way we live. Worship is the reasonable and requisite response to El Shaddai. If you can think of a better response, you come tell me. Please, after the service, I want you to come tell me. A God who speaks a billion galaxies into existence, I want you to tell me what is the most reasonable thing you and I can do. If this is really true, if He really does this, if He, if he really speaks and galaxies stand for, what is what is the only reasonable thing left for us to do? I submit to you, it is to get on our face and worship this God and live for Him. He is worthy. He is worthy to live for. Okay, I've got a surprise for you. I know many of you are very excited when I say that. Some of you just laugh to yourself. But we have visual aids tonight. Now I know... I know most of our visual aids are terrible. It's just because Adam do, does most of them. But, <laughs> but I, all I want to do is give you a mental picture of the power of God. That's all I'm trying to do. I'm not going to belabor this. I'm just going to try to give you a mental picture of the power of God. Here we go. Okay, everybody see Earth? These are just some other planets in, in uh, our solar system. Okay, now here are the rest of the planets in the solar system. You see Earth? Okay? You think Earth is big? Come on. Give me a break. Oh, here's, here's our solar system with our sun. Do you see Earth? Anybody? You can see it in the back. You can't already see it in the back. Now this is power. Look at this power. Look at that sun. It, it, has, it, it uh, burns at 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit on the surface and 40 million degrees uh, Fahrenheit in the core. There's a picture of it. Is that awesome or what? It's like a big nuclear explosion. It just, it's just up there doing this. It's nuclear uh, fission, no, fusion, nuclear fusion. Oh, here's our sun compared to another sun in our galaxy. I'm still, I'm just inside our galaxy, okay? I'm not going outside our galaxy. Okay, you get this? Power. In the beginning, God said, let there be, and there was. Oh, here's another one. Oh, 
Here's another star in our galaxy, and here's our sun. It's one pixel. You can't see it. I'm still in our galaxy. I'm still in our galaxy. And beloved, there are billions of galaxies. There are billions of galaxies. And the print didn't come out, but it should say, there it comes. El Shaddai, awesome, creator, God. There's our PowerPoint display for the night, okay? Job told Bildad, with respect to the created order, Job said, these are the fringes of his ways. The prophet, the prophet Habakkuk said, this is the hiding of his power. And when I show you this slide, what I want to say to you is, this is the hiding of the power of El Shaddai. You have not seen anything yet. You've not seen anything yet. This is the hiding of His power. I'm going to close by making the application I think God would have us to make when it comes to Genesis 1.1. As we touched on last week, Psalm 19 tells us we're supposed to be going to school on the created order. You guys are familiar with the, the message Bible. It's a paraphrase by Eugene Peterson. I love how he paraphrases Psalm 19. He says, Madame Day holds classes every morning and Professor Knight lectures every evening. You are supposed to go to school on the created order. You're supposed to meet your Creator you're supposed to see His fingerprints and get some sense of just how awesome, how awesome He is. So God expects His children to be doing their lessons. He not only expects us to behold how powerful and awesome He is, He expects us to be doing our math. And what I want to say to you about this math, when you, when you look at the created order, He just simply means for you to, to add 1 plus 1. Now, what does 1 plus 1 equal? Someone tell me. I know, it's, I know it's tough. It's late in the sermon. Some of you are dozing off. But 1 plus 1 is what? Oh, man. This is spoken by an elder of the church. Okay. We're going to have to... We must... Okay. We'll have to talk. We'll have to talk. We've got to do the math. Wait. We see it. We see the created order. What does it mean? One plus one. Oh, He's there. He's awesome. We should, we should worship Him and, and serve Him. God expects you to do the math, beloved. God expects you to do the math. He expects you to do, deduce that He is there. And He is a God worthy to trust, worthy to love, worthy to serve, worthy to worship, worthy to live for. God, I've told you this many, many times, God has not called you, for those of you who are out there who are born-again believers, He's not called you to small and simple and careful and manageable lives. That's not the kind of life that God calls His children to. He's called us to huge, uncareful, radical lives of faith. This is what sons and daughters of the living God, El Shaddai, are called to live. And when we behold the power of God in the created order, we're supposed to read that and we're supposed to react to that. I love that in Hebrews chapter 11, you know the great faith chapter, first, the first thing that the writer does is he, he defines faith for us. The second thing he does is he says that the men of old gained approval through their faith. And the, very, the third thing that God does, and I want, I'm going to read this text to you, Hebrews 11:3, By faith... 
We understand that the worlds were prepared by, by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are seen. Why do you think that little insert in there with respect to, is inserted there with respect to creation in Hebrews 11, the chapter about true biblical genuine faith? Why do you think that's in there? Because you're supposed to read His glory and His power off the created order and then you're supposed to live it. That's why it's in there. You get to verse 3 of Hebrews 11 and he starts talking about the awesome creative power of God. And then what comes in, what comes in after that in Hebrews 11? There's just this avalanche of men and women who actually believe that He's the Creator God and that He's good for His Word and that He can be trusted and they live these radical lives. These radical lives of faith you know, men who left their home without knowing where, where they were going, barren women conceiving children, God's people walking through the Red Sea, a farmer routing the enemy outnumbered 450 to 1, and a little boy stepping in front of a giant and bringing him down. This is the kind of life that God's calling us to. Not safe, careful, manageable lives, but uncareful, extravagant, radical lives of faith, believing His promises. What I want to say to you, Genesis 1.1 is your surety. It is your earnest. It is your down payment on God's ability to show up in your circumstance. Hey, is He a God worth believing and obeying? You bet He is. Look at Antares, which was the largest star we saw. You bet, he, you bet God's good for His Word. You bet He'll keep every promise. You bet He'll answer every prayer. You bet he will. I'm just going to close with a, uh, with a, with a, a quotation by A.W. Pink. Listen to this. I want you to listen. Please listen uh, very clear, carefully to this quote. This is what God means for his, this is how God means for his power to, to infiltrate and permeate and impact your life. I want you to hear this. <clears throat> quote Well, may the believer trust such a God. Amen. He is worthy of implicit confidence. Amen? Nothing is too hard for Him. Amen? If God were wanting in power and had limit to His strength, we might well despair. But seeing that He is clothed with omnipotence, no, listen to this, no prayer is too hard for Him to answer. No need is too great for Him to supply. No passion too strong for Him to subdue. No temptation too powerful for Him to deliver from. No misery too deep for Him to relieve. Amen? You and I are supposed to read off Genesis 1.1 that He's an awesome God. And we're supposed to leave here tonight. And we're supposed to go out in the world and live. And live like He's an awesome God. That's my exhortation to you tonight. Go live it. Go live it the glory of Jesus Christ, your Creator and your Redeemer. Let's pray together. Awesome God, we praise You. As Paul wrote to the Romans, we see it. We see Your invisible attributes, Your eternal power and divine nature. We see it and we understand it and we are in awe. We worship You, great Creator God. 
And then your, your scripture goes on to tell us that not only are you our creator, you're our redeemer, and we're in awe of that. Lord, I pray that we would appropriate this power in our lives to, to defeat sin and depression. Father, to leave behind things that are not pleasing to you, to move forward with great boldness, to, that we might be fearless Christians, that we might be proclaiming the reality and the worth and the beauty of Jesus. Lord, as we live this life, Oh, Lord, help us to walk in a way that's worthy of such a God. We want to walk like true sons and daughters of El Shaddai who holds Antares in His hand and all the universe in His hand. We praise You, awesome Creator. We praise You, awesome Redeemer. In Jesus' name, Amen.